Tonight I'd like to talk about the Third Noble Truth and conjoin it with the topic of Nibbana. We're going to have two talks on this topic. And tonight what I want to do is present uh, an overview of the classical meaning of Nibbana as it's found in the discourses of the Buddha. And at times this may seem a little theoretical to you or a little remote. But then Carol tomorrow night is going to talk about how we can make it approachable and relevant in, in our own practice and find elements of this quality in our direct experience here and now. So we'll have both, a, you might say, a theoretical background, an overview, and then tomorrow night a more practical uh, approach to the Third Noble Truth. So you'll remember we talked last time about uh, the Buddha leaving home at age 29, embarking on this quest for what he called the unaging, unailing, deathless, sorrowless security from bondage, Nibbana. And he found what he was looking for on the night of his awakening under the Bodhi tree in Bodhgaya. And there was a poem that he spontaneously uttered right after his awakening. It goes like this. Through many a birth I wandered in samsara, seeking but not finding the builder of this house. Painful is birth again and again. O house builder, now you are seen. You shall build no house again. All your rafters are broken. Your ridgepole is shattered too. My mind has attained the unconditioned and reached the very end of craving. So his comment is that painful is birth again and again. He's reflecting on the thousands and thousands of lives that he saw that he had lived in this cycle, in the attendant dukkha in each one. And in this evening's insight, he had found a way to be free of all that. So the house that he was talking about, the builder of this house, the house is the body that takes birth again and again. The house builder is craving. The ridge pole that gets shattered is ignorance. And then, as he says, my mind has attained the unconditioned. Unconditioned is a synonym for nibbana and reached the very end of craving. So this brings us back to the statement of the third noble truth that we talked about uh, on the first full day of the retreat. Now this bhikkhus is the noble truth of the cessation of suffering. It is the remainderless fading away and cessation of that same craving, the giving up and relinquishing of it, freedom from it, non-reliance on it. So through the poem and the third noble truth, we are getting this equation, this correspondence between the third noble truth the end of suffering, the end of craving, nibbana, and the unconditioned. So what we want to do in the talk is sort of explore all these different ways of talking about the third noble truth and how they relate. So we get immediately into this question, well, what is nibbana? And I'd say that this is the hardest topic to talk about in all of Buddhism. Yet fools will rush in where angels fear to tread. And so I'm going to talk about it tonight. Uh, It's hard because, one, the Buddha was deliberately vague on the details here. 
He didn't want to paint detailed pictures of it because people could get a misleading impression from words. He just wanted to show people the way, and then when people followed the way, they would find it and know for themselves what it is. A second thing is, you've probably heard this in many um, religious teachings, that the, the ultimate kind of experience that one can have in religious terms is beyond words. All the great religious traditions say this, and this is true in Buddhism also. So different people will put words to the insight into Nibbana, but the descriptions may sound different. It's very interesting to listen to two different teachers describe it, and you'll hear entirely different descriptions, and yet both may have undergone similar degrees of liberation. So the descriptions and kind of the views on what constituted will differ, but the liberations can be, uh, can be the same. And it is indescribable. The ultimate is not, it's not able to be put into words because words discriminate and the ultimate is beyond discrimination. The Buddha said this about it. This Dhamma that I have attained is profound, hard to see and hard to understand. It's subtle to be experienced by the wise. So the talk tonight may not be either profound or subtle, but it may be hard to understand. <laughs> so don't try to too hard to figure it out. You know, this is not really a conceptual thing. Get the feeling of it. Let the feeling come through. And even though some of the descriptions may seem a little remote right now, let the principle of it guide your practice. I'll explain some practice directions tonight. Carol will talk about more tomorrow. So the literal meaning of the term Nibbana is um, extinguishing or blowing out or quenching. It's a fire that has been put out. Now, when a fire is put out, where is it to be found? It's nowhere, is it? It ceased to be. So the fire in this case is the fire you could either call it of clinging or of craving. And when it is extinguished, it's gone. And the mind experiences a great coolness that is the relief from the burning energy of craving or clinging. So Nibbana is often described in terms of coolness and peace. This is the experience of it. Sariputta gave maybe the most concise description of it in all of the suttas when he said, the destruction of greed, the destruction of aversion, the destruction of delusion, this is called Nibbana. So we realize that craving encompasses greed, aversion, and delusion. And when craving is destroyed, these tendencies of mind, these deep-rooted unconscious tendencies are also ended. So the, the one who has ended greed, aversion, delusion has come into a state of great freedom. These forces no longer afflict one. Craving no longer afflicts one. Suffering no longer afflicts one. And the experience is one of a great freedom, unshakable um, freedom. So A, Nibbana is pointing to a state of mind of an enlightened being, a liberated being. 
but it's also usually understood as a deathless element that's already present in each of us. So this becomes very interesting. An unconditioned element that's already here and now within our being. That makes it not so remote. That means that some aspect or flavor of this unconditioned element may be felt in this very moment. But why is it hard to see? Why is it hard for us to discover and touch? The reason is that its vibration is very subtle and the vibrations of greed, aversion, delusion are very gross and they mask it or obscure it. So when the mind is active with greed, aversion, delusion, it's too busy, it's too uh, active for this very subtle vibration of Nibbana to come into the foreground. And that's why the path of meditation is to calm down the forces of greed, aversion, delusion so that the very nature of the mind becomes closer to that of Nibbana. And when it becomes very close, then there's the possibility of opening to it and seeing it directly. The most reliable guidelines that I know of for meditative approach to Nibbana are the seven factors of enlightenment. And I understand their purpose as to shape the mind so that it is as close as possible to the vibration of Nibbana. And then there's a possibility with that convergence that it can be revealed, that we can know it directly. So this um, unconditioned element is already present. And the aim of practice, according to the Third Noble Truth, is for us to realize it. And this expression of uh, the unconditioned element as something that's present in us was most clearly stated in this passage uh, from a text called the Udana. These are the words of the Buddha. There is bhikkhus an unborn, unbecome, unmade, uncompounded. If there were not this unborn, unbecome, unmade, uncompounded, then there would be no deliverance here visible from that which is born, become, made, compounded. But since there is this unborn, unbecome, unmade, uncompounded, therefore a deliverance is visible from that which is born, become, made, compounded. So what the Buddha is pointing to here is a contrast between all the conditioned elements of our experience, which include all the mental states, all the sense contact, all the impermanent things that come and go, and that catch us in craving. A contrast between those and this latent element which is unborn, meaning it's not come into creation in the same way as sense objects. It's uncompounded in that it doesn't arise from prior conditions. So it's said that it is not subject to arising and passing. And that's why it's available at any time. So these are some synonyms that the Buddha gave for this element, also called the unconditioned, the truth, 
the other shore, the everlasting, peace, the deathless, safety, freedom, the shelter, the harbor, the refuge, the beyond. And this is considered, Nibbana is considered the highest kind of happiness available to us. It's above sense pleasures. It's even above yam burgers with chipotle sauce. (laughs) Which is a very high form of sense pleasure. I thought that was like the best retreat dinner I've, I've maybe ever had tonight. So many thanks to our cooks. It's even above the blissful states of meditation, jhana states, which are very can be very blissful and uh, pleasant. Because it's so happy, because it's a place of safety, we're no longer subject to the torments of mind, of greed, aversion, and delusion. We are sheltered from all that, and that peace comes as a huge relief. It's said also in the Dhammapada that peace is the highest happiness. So whether you consider it the ultimate peace of Nibbana or relative peace, I think this is a really interesting comment on our psychology. And do we believe it? Because peace is available in any moment when we let go of our activities. And there is a relief in that kind of peace. If we believe that that's the highest happiness, wouldn't that incline us to stop pursuing all the worldly impermanent things that we pursue? Because they all stir us up. But we can contact this peace that we can rest in in any moment in which we give up all those pursuits, all that activity of striving and pushing and pulling. So this is really, I think, a very profound psychological insight that is not well understood in the West. Peace is the highest form of happiness. It's not a bubbly kind of happiness, peace. It's not like always coming out as this great bubbly joy. But the very peaceful nature of it is satisfying in a way that sense pleasures aren't. So how do we get in that direction to the unconditioned, to liberation, to freedom? Again from the Buddha. Just as the river Ganges slants, slopes, and inclines toward the ocean, so too a practitioner who develops and cultivates the Noble Eightfold Path slants, slopes, and inclines towards Nibbana. You're only going in one direction. I hope you want to go there. Because that's where this is heading. You know, and as Yogi Berra said, If you don't know where you're going, you might end up somewhere else. (laughs) So this is where we're all going. Some people are surprised by this when they, just somewhere down the way, they thought, oh, I thought I was going for this, you know, bliss and uplifting joy. No, you're going to peace. Oh, I'm not sure I want to go there. Trust us. This is the place to go. This is the highest happiness. This is where the Buddha was pointing us to. And this path is outlined in many discourses. There's one where it's described very beautifully in kind of two stages. 
There's one stage that goes from suffering to contentment. Or you could say to normal happiness. And then there's another part of the path that goes from happiness to liberation. So Manindraji, Joseph's first teacher, liked to, likes to say, like to say, if you aim for the highest happiness, all the others will follow in the wake. So normal human happiness, worldly happiness, joy and delight all come in the wake of aiming for the highest happiness of peace. Now there are two ways that the path can be understood uh, within all the Buddhist traditions. You'll hear these different flavors. Our approach is very much along the lines of strengthening the positive qualities of mind, developing them to such a degree, especially the seven factors of enlightenment, that they converge on awakening. They converge on nibbana. So this is a path of effort where factors are cultivated deliberately and brought into maturity and strength so that the mind is poised for awakening to take place. There's another view of the path which says that the natural purity of our being is already here. And you can think of the unconditioned element in this way is that natural purity within us is already here. And all that has to happen is that we thin out the clouds or the clouds thin out through awareness and then this natural purity comes through. I think this is interesting because one way stresses effort, the other way stresses trust. And things unfold best, I think, when you put both together. You make the effort to cultivation and you trust that that purity of nature is there as well. Now, effort can take us very close, but it can't, effort can't do the work to take us to the fullness of the third noble truth. Why? Because Nibbana is desireless. Nibbana is aimless. And any kind of effort directed toward a goal is not of the nature of Nibbana. So effort can build the mind to this beautiful balance of conditioned peacefulness, but it can't open the door to the unconditioned element. That only comes from grace, some uncontrollable, unpredictable element. So in our meditation, what we want to do is to develop all the factors to get us as close as possible and then trust. Because at some point, we have to stop trying. Because trying does not align with the energy of the desirelessness of the unconditioned. So there's this nice story about Ananda. You all probably know Ananda is like the sweetest guy in the whole of the Pali canon. He was a cousin of the Buddhas who was his attendant for the last 25 years of his life. Very loyal, devoted, and friendly. It's said that Ananda had a big part in the establishment of the Bhikkhuni order, the nun's order, which the Buddha initially refused because it was just not done at the time to have women uh, practicing seriously in India of that age. But Ananda pleaded their case to the Buddha, who eventually agreed. 
So Ananda is like everybody's best friend. So, but he devoted all his time to serving the Buddha, and he hadn't had a lot of time for his own practice. So after the Buddha's death, there was a gathering. It was said of 500 fully awakened beings. And their purpose was to collect the teachings so that they could be passed on to other generations. But the gathering was only for fully awakened beings, and Ananda was not one. However, Ananda had this great memory and had been with the Buddha for 25 years and had heard all these teachings and could recite them. So the people were going, what can we do? You know, we need Ananda here, but he's not awakened yet. And Ananda was feeling the conflict, you know, well, look, I got to get awakened so I can join the boys. And uh, so he decided, I'll practice really hard until that, t- until that time comes. This is called the first council meeting. And so he was, you know, sitting and walking and meditating really fervently and staying up all night in his effort to reach an awakening for the next day's council. And it wasn't happening. All that effort, all the trying, and toward morning he realized he wasn't, he wasn't getting there. I said, I guess it's not going to happen for me this time. Well, I might as well take some rest and maybe I can be helpful in some other way tomorrow. And he just relaxed his effort, sat on his bed, made to lie down, and before his head touched the pillow, the final moment of enlightenment came for Ananda. So he went to bed in Arhant, woke up the next morning and joined the others for the council. And all the suttas that you read that begin, Thus have I heard, which is a lot, are recited by Ananda. It was his memory of those teachings that bring us those texts. So effort takes us to a certain point, and then some relaxation and grace brings the opening. So um, Ananda was not like a beginner, and there are different stages of awakening in our tradition. They are considered to be four. And each stage, it said, releases um, some more of the fetters that bind us. There are said to be ten fetters that bind us uh, to continued existence, to blindness, um, to not understanding. And each stage of awakening releases some of these. So the first stage is called uh, stream entry. And this is characterized by this experience that you remember from uh, Anya Kandanya in our sutta the first night. The Buddha gave the first teaching and Kandanya got it. And this phrase that's in the, the sutta describes Kandanya's getting it. While this discourse was being spoken, there arose in the Venerable Kandanya the dust-free, stainless vision of the Dhamma. Whatever is subject to origination is all subject to cessation. That becomes a standard phrase in the suttas for this preliminary enlightenment experience called stream entry. And what it means is that the, the individual, the, the practitioner, the woman or the man, it's applied to both in the suttas, has had the first direct realization in their personal experience of the deathless element, of the unconditioned, of Nibbana. So there has been the opening of their mind to that, and that is transformative. 
When the mind opens and experiences this, that is what's meant by an enlightenment moment, and it transforms us because it has the ability to uproot permanently some of these fetters that blind us. So stream entry, the first stage, is said to uproot three, uh, three fetters. One is called personality view, and it's basically a belief that there really is a self within this mind-body process. The first contact with the unconditioned removes the belief that there is a self here. Now, the sense of a self will return again and again to a stream enterer, but they can look at it closely and see that it's not true. The belief in a self has been uh, taken out. It eliminates the fetter of doubt, and that means um, doubt about the path, whether the path described by the Buddha actually leads to the greatest freedom. It eliminates that because one has experienced momentarily the truth of the unconditioned which brings this unshakable peace temporarily to oneself. One knows directly that is possible through the development of the factors of the path. And thirdly, it eliminates an attachment to what are called rules and observances, sometimes called rites and rituals. Now this is not very meaningful for Westerners today. We don't have a lot of attachment to religious rituals. But at the time of the Buddha, there were a lot. The, um, the Brahmin uh, caste had very elaborate rituals that they believed purified the mind, bathing in holy water and doing certain chants with a priest and doing animal sacrifices and a lot of strange ritualistic things that they believed would purify the heart. The Buddha said, those don't do it. <laughs> Forget about it. Similarly, sila, which we practice as good conduct, is a very helpful supporting practice for the path, but sila alone will not free the heart and mind. So sila is also included in this rules and observances. So it's said that for a stream enterer, one is destined to reach full enlightenment after at most seven more births. So this is sort of a guarantee. Having reached this point, ah, one's eventual liberation is assured. Until this point's not assured. One can go from birth to birth for a long, long time. But this is the, um, this is the power of this particular insight. And this is also not just an old Indian fairy tale. Practitioners today in the West and I'd say even more in Asia, do reach this stage of understanding not uncommonly. This happens primarily on long retreats, February-March retreats at Spirit Rock and the three-month course at IMS. Practitioners generally who are very dedicated, who have been practicing for for some time, these openings do happen uh, in our current day and age. And people feel um, very inspired and very confident uh, about their practice after this, after this has happened. It's sometimes not um, always possible to know whether an experience is a valid enlightenment experience or not. Uh, you know, you're a practitioner and you've heard a lot of stories and heard a lot of words, but when the actual thing comes, is it that or is it something else? So Ajahn Sumedho had a question like that. He was practicing under Ajahn Chah. He'd been practicing for a few years. This is in Thailand. 
Ajahn Sumedho ordained with Ajahn Chah in the, the late 60s. One, I think the first Western monk to ordain with Ajahn Chah. And was practicing very diligently. He was very inspired at that point. And he had this experience that he thought might be stream entry. And so he went to ask Ajahn Chah about it because he wanted to have it confirmed. And he described what had happened to Ajahn Chah. And he said, um, was that stream entry? And Ajahn Chah said, how should I know? I wasn't there. (laughs) So I think this is a great reflection. Um, Western Vipassana teachers also tend to have this kind of humble attitude about students' enlightenment experiences. We, We don't confirm or deny because we can't really tell. Only the person who's had it can really tell. And sometimes only after some time can they really tell whether it has really uh, purified the heart, uprooted some of the fetters of the mind, then, then one, one might know. Uh, the Buddha could tell, according to the, to the suttas, um, but uh, we can't. So we don't tend to, to make those kinds of evaluations. Then the next stage of enlightenment is called a once-returner. And what that means is that um, one will only return, let's say, to the human realm one more time. And then enlightenment is assured, full enlightenment is assured um, after that. And a once-returner, no fetters are actually completely uprooted, but the primary calaces of lust, hatred, and delusion are, are greatly weakened. So a characteristic of a once-returner is um, greatly reduced, primarily lust and aversion. I think that some Westerners have, um, whom we know, and probably you know, have probably reached this stage. Um, I don't tend to query my colleagues about it. So, um, And even if I did, I don't know that I would always trust their evaluation. But I believe that some, some have. Um, so this is, this is not an easy thing to do, and it's an uncommon occurrence, in the West at least. And then the third stage is called a non-returner. And in this stage, significant um, fetters are uprooted. Sense desire and ill will are ended. So the possibility for anger is gone at this stage. Uh, lust is gone at this stage. Um, Deepama was said to have reached this stage of awakening. I don't know if you all know Deepama. She was a Bengali woman who practiced under Manindraji also and very strong meditation practice, very high levels of attainment and was said to have reached the third stage of awakening. One of her comments, a a couple of comments uh, she made about third stage is that one, she said, Family life is no longer possible after third stage. And family life, I believe, is the Indian euphemism for sex. So after third stage, because sexual desire, sensual desire is no longer present, there's no purpose to intimate relationship, intimate physical relationship. But she said the reason that it's so hard to reach third stage, the reason so few people do it, it is because it requires opening to the truth of dukkha, on such a deep level. We were talking today about how opening to the first noble truth is really an important ingredient in activating the path. 
You know, and it means we really need to feel the suffering. Someone called it penetrating the suffering. It's a fine way to talk about it. We really have to feel it, uh, feel the hurt of the suffering. And Deepama's comment was that to reach third stage, one has to feel that unsatisfactoriness of our existential condition in a very, very deep way. And yet, the degree of freedom at this stage is huge. Carol and I both had a chance to spend about a month with Deepama when she first came to the States. We were looking after her and uh, cooking for her and taking her out shopping and so on. I never saw a flicker of any reactivity in her in the month that we were around her. She was always peaceful, equanimous, untroubled. It's a very impressive being. If you haven't read her biography, which is just called Deepama, it's really a wonderful read. And it's especially inspiring for women because there are a limited number of strong women teachers in our lineage. And Deepama is someone in our lifetimes uh, who has really uh, manifested great awakened uh, spirit. Very inspiring person. And then the... um, the fourth stage is what's called the fully awakened or fully enlightened one known as an arahant. So in this, all the earlier fetters have already been removed and the five final fetters to go. Some of these are a little obscure. Attachment to fine sense realms and attachment to immaterial realms. These are more purified ways of being cultivated through states of concentration and jhana than the normal human uh, realm, which is a mixture of pleasure and pain. So these are very refined states developed on the basis of strong concentration that can be quite quite satisfying and blissful, but not the most satisfying and blissful. So at a certain point in meditative development, these can be attachments. And so the arhan has let go of these refined states as attachments. But here are the three really, I think, most significant ones. The arhat has completely ended conceit, which means any sense of self at all. Not just the belief in a self, there's no longer any sense of self in an arhat. There's a story about an arhat who was captured by bandits who uh, were planning to kill him I'm not sure why. That's just what bandits did in India in those days. If they catch you, they kill you. Why not? And they were shocked that he wasn't afraid when they told him that they were going to kill him. And he said, what should I be afraid of? There's no owner of this body and mind. What should I fear? And the bandits were so impressed with his character that they let him go, as these stories always do end happily. So any sense of self is gone. Now here's an interesting one that goes. Restlessness. One of the last fetters to go. You ever think you're sitting quietly, your mind shouldn't be restless? Only an arhant's mind is really freed from restlessness. Otherwise, we can concentrate our mind and restlessness can be temporarily absent, but the tendency to restlessness exists in us. And what this really is, I think is there must be something better somewhere else. I think that's a kernel of restlessness. There must be something better elsewhere. Let me see if I can find it or think about it or move toward it. That's gone. 
not looking for anything else. And finally, ignorance is gone. Any confusion about the way things are, about the nature of uh, the impermanent conditioned formations, the nature of craving, the nature of clinging, the entry into suffering, none of that remains. There's clarity, there's wisdom about all of that. So the wisdom is what prevents one from ever again falling into those states of suffering. And it's said that uh, the fully enlightened one will no longer be born in any realm, will no longer take birth again. This is just a short quote from the canon. The sage at peace is not born, does not age, does not die. That's kind of metaphorical. He or she is not shaken and they are not agitated for there is nothing present in them by which they might be born. So the urges that would lead to birth are extinguished. This is the meaning of extinguishing. Those urges are gone. This is referred to by the Buddha as an unshakable deliverance of mind. Because the fetters that cause restlessness or craving are gone, the mind can't be shaken by anything. And this is what he said is the goal of his teaching, this unshakable deliverance of mind. This holy life, friends, does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of virtue for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration, or knowledge and insight. But it is this unshakable deliverance of mind that is the goal of the holy life, its heartwood and its end. So again, um, people in the modern age, some of our masters are still experiencing this degree of liberation. There's a Again, it's quite a candid story. I read the other night Lung Pa Liam's account of his own awakening where Dukkha was no longer present. There's another Thai forest master, Ajahn Mahabua, who's also recounted his awakening. He had been a monk for 10 years and he decided to make a very strong effort in the rains retreat, a three-month practice period in the late (coughs) summer. And what he decided to do was to sit up all night every night without moving. So he did that. And he said that from doing that, he lost his fear of death because the pain from death couldn't be any worse than the pain he had experienced in sitting up all night, every night. He said, from that point on, I kept making progress until my mind was like rock. In other words, I was skilled enough in the stability of my concentration that the mind was like a slab of rock. It couldn't be easily affected by anything at all. Can you imagine that, having a mind that's that stable and firm? No restlessness, there's no craving. But he wasn't yet awakened. He said, and then I was stuck on that concentration for five years. It was so satisfying, it was so peaceful, he didn't look for anything else. But then he realized he was stuck. So he needed to turn to wisdom, and he started to investigate. He started to investigate craving and non-craving, suffering and lack of suffering, but he saw that all of those were changing. So he just came back to paying attention, basic mindfulness and wisdom, 
and he saw those could become steady. So they became impartial and impassive. The mind was not tending to anything. This is a quote. At that moment, the cosmos in the mind, over which ignorance held sway, trembled and quaked. Ignorance was thrown down from its throne on the heart. In its place, the pure mind appeared. At the same moments that ignorance was toppled and eradicated through the power of mindfulness and wisdom. So this eradication of ignorance is his declaration of his liberation. Very beautiful account. So, you know, one never knows in practice when a moment of some kind of opening might come. There's this collection of um, stories and poems called the Terigata. It's verses of the elder nuns that were collected around the time of the Buddha a little bit after. And so you read the accounts of the women who were practicing at that time. There's actually a beautiful book called First Buddhist Women that puts together a lot of these stories and puts the uh, the, the verses and their biographies around them. It's really, it's a good read. So this was a nun called Siha. And this is the story of her, of her practice. Obsessed by sensuality, I never got to the origin, but was agitated, my mind beyond control. I dreamed of a great happiness. I was passionate, but had no peace. Pale and thin, I wandered seven years, unhappy day and night. So just imagine that's her seven years as a nun, wandering through the forest, because she, she wanted to find peace. Pale and thin, I wandered seven years, unhappy day and night. Then I took a rope into the forest and thought, I'd rather hang than go back to that narrow life. I tied a strong noose to the branch of a tree and put it round my neck. Just then, my heart was set free. Amazing. You get that somebody brought right to the edge and you must have been some big letting go and then liberated. One of the interesting things about uh, this waking up process is that enlightened beings can have really different personalities. You know, you sort of think, oh, the self goes, you know, greed, hatred, and delusion go. Everybody must be like all the same. It's not like that at all. These people can be real characters, number one, and they still manifest probably the same personality that they, that they had, in a, you know, in a general direction for years. For instance, Mahasi Sayadaw one of the greatest meditation masters of the past century. Carol and I had the chance to meet him and practice with him at IMS in the late 70s. Very strong equanimity. You could just feel the kind of unshakability of his mind, but not a huge amount of metta. You didn't feel like you wanted to kind of crawl up and cuddle with him, you know, like, a, <laughs> like a grandpa. He was quite remote but very, very cooled out. Deepama, on the other hand, you would have loved to have as your grandmother. When she came to the States, she brought her grandson, whose name was, was Rishi, and she was so warm and kind and loving with him. She was loving with, with everyone that she met. She just always had a smile for people. Ajahn Chah, the most 
um, amazing sense of humor of any monk that I've ever seen. He was very playful. Uh, He could use his humor to poke at people. But what he would be pointing to were the character things that needed development. So he was a real um, person-oriented Dharma teacher and had a lot of wisdom that he shared with people about how to manage their families and their businesses and you know, train their children and all kinds of things. Very practical and very funny. But his teacher, Ajahn Man, was very fierce. If you see photographs of him, and you can look him up on the web, there are photos of him, uh, just a handful of photos. He always looks kind of like... <laughs> very serious and stern. And it said that um, he would make his, uh, his students sit the whole meditation schedule, even if they had malaria. If you've ever had malaria, that is not a fun disease to have. High fever, your body feels awful. And he would make the practitioners continue to sit so that they would lose concern for pleasure or pain. And then you have someone like the Dalai Lama who I don't know what level of awakening he's at, but I think it's really high. And he just has this amazing manifestation of joy and compassion. To me, he's the most inspiring person on the planet, um, even though he's not a Theravadan. You know, he's, still, <laughs> he's still pretty cool. <laughs> very free, very free heart. So, um, you know, this kind of fourth stage stuff can seem, can seem really far off. But we can find, even in the suttas that are describing arahants, we can find some really good pointers to our practice. And Carol will, you know, give more tomorrow night that will be relevant for us. But I just want to uh, point to a few of these um, to, to head us in a certain direction. So one of the phrases that comes in a lot in the suttas is this phrase, liberation through non-clinging. This is mentioned a lot. And when you think about it, it's actually a practice instruction. When we practice non-clinging and not holding on to things, that can become a path. And where non-clinging leads is to this experience of liberation. So Ajahn Chah said it you know, quite succinctly. If you let go a little, there's a little peace. If you let go a lot, there's a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, there's complete peace. So play with this as a meditation instruction. What does it feel like if you let go? You know, you're just sitting. You know, maybe there's a little holding. Maybe there's not. But just bring to mind non-clinging. Letting go, abandoning, releasing, however you want to think of it. And just see what happens in that moment. It's an instruction you can give yourself. See what the effect is. See what your experience is. Um, I find that it, o- it opens the mind. And it brings back some kind of expansiveness that has an element of greater freedom and ease in it. And this can be carried, obviously, to quite some depth. So this is a dialogue between two, two of the Buddha's greatest disciples, Anuruddha and Sariputta. So Sariputta had already become an arahant, and he was uh, helping Anuruddha, who had not yet 
uh, become fully enlightened. But Anuruddha was a great practitioner, as you'll see. So he was asking Sariputta for meditation advice. And he said, friend, Sariputta, here's what's going on for me. With the divine eye, which is purified and surpasses the human, I survey a thousandfold world system. That's his first point. Second report. I'm still waiting for a yogi to come and report that in an interview. (laughs) (laughs) Hasn't happened yet. Second report. Energy is aroused in me. My mindfulness is established without confusion. My body is tranquil without disturbance. My mind is concentrated and one-pointed. Third report. Yet my mind is still not liberated from the taints through non-clinging. This is why he's looking for advice. This is Sariputta's reply. Friend Anuruddha, when you say that the divine eye surveys a thousandfold world system, that is your conceit. When you say that energy is aroused and mindfulness is established and your mind is concentrated, that is your restlessness. And when you say your mind is still not liberated from the taints, that is your remorse. It would be good for you if you would abandon these three qualities and stop attending to them. Instead, direct your attention to the deathless element. That's a sort of wisdom. Sariputta was basically saying, don't wander off into these thoughts and evaluations about what's going on in your practice. Quiet your mind, direct your attention to the deathless element, which is a synonym for the unconditioned or nibbana. It's likely Anuruddha knew the deathless element from prior experience. He may have been a stream entry, although it doesn't stream enter, although it doesn't record that for sure. But it, but it's quite likely. Once one has reached the stream entry, one knows the flavor of the unconditioned. One knows the flavor of the deathless element, and one can incline the mind toward that. So Sariputta is saying that would be the best meditation instruction for you. Direct your mind to the deathless element. So Anuruddha went off and practiced, and it said a short while later, he realized for himself the liberation for which he was practicing, and Anuruddha became one of the arahants. Now that's great if one is a stream enter and already knows from direct experience what the deathless element feels like, you might say. But suppose one doesn't know what the deathless element feels like. So then there's another sutta, that gives some, some more direction, let's say, um, toward, toward this end. So the Buddha was talking to a group of monks, um, including one called uh, Malunkyaputta. And so this sutta is named after Malunkyaputta. And this is one of the uh, more, I think, um, beautiful and concise pointings in the canon. It's, it's in the Majjhima Nikaya. And the Buddha says, whatever exists of sense objects and states of mind, one sees those states as impermanent, as suffering, as void, as not self. In other words, one sees the three characteristics of all conditioned phenomena. One turns the mind away from those states and directs it toward the deathless element thus. So again, the instruction is move away from conditioned things because they're impermanent and unsatisfactory. 
Turn towards the deathless element. Direct your attention there. Direct it toward the deathless element thus. This is peaceful. This is sublime. That is the stilling of all formations. The relinquishment of all attachments. Dispassion. Cessation. Nibbana. So the way I read this, this is like the Buddha's up in the um, air control, air traffic control tower, and you're flying in for a landing. And you're not quite sure where the landing strip is. You know, your instruments aren't quite tuned. And he's telling you how to land in Nibbana. So you discover what's peaceful. You find what's sublime. And that is the stilling of all formations. That means the mind stops moving toward the sense objects. How does one get there? Through the relinquishment of attaching. Through letting go. And then two other qualities come in. The first is dispassion. And that means one is no longer caught up in lust for any of the sense experiences. And why would one be? Because one has seen them all as impermanent, unsatisfactory, and void. Any ones that we run after are just going to crumple. So this is the quality of dispassion. You might call it also equanimity. Uh, The literal meaning of the word is without lust, viraga, without lust. One ceases to lust after the sense experiences. And that leads into the state the Buddha calls cessation. Now, cessation has many applications in the Buddha's teachings. We see it in the Third Noble Truth. The cessation of craving is the cessation of suffering. So here we can take it as the cessation of craving and the cessation of suffering. The formations have stilled. Lust has gone away. All attachments have been let go. And one practices the cessation of craving. One does not give rise to greed, aversion, or delusion in any direction. And that is what opens the door to the deathless element of Nibbana. So these are instructions that we can reflect on. The stilling of formations and the relinquishment of attachments, the peaceful, sublime quality of that, not lusting after anything, and discovering the cessation of craving, that's what can open us to that unconditioned, deathless element. So I want to close with just one more quotation. This is from the Udana also, um, about Nibbana. This is from the Buddha. One who is dependent has wavering. One who is independent has no wavering. So here dependent means dependent on something in the present moment. When we're leaning on something or attached to something, pushing or pulling, we are dependent on it. One who is dependent has wavering. 
One who is independent has no wavering. There being no wavering, there is calm. There being calm, there is no desire. There being no desire, there is no coming or going. There being no coming or going, there is no passing away or arising. There being no passing away or arising, there is neither a here, nor a there, nor an in-between. This, just this, is the end of suffering. So let's just sit for a minute and let the words settle. She turns her mind away from conditioned states and directs it toward the deathless element thus. This is peaceful. This is sublime. That is the stilling of all formations, the relinquishment of all attachments, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. Thank you.